Hello and uh, thank you very much for being patient and waiting for me. Um, it gives me enormous pleasure to be presenting here today, uh, having first David with his fantastic talk for a distinguished historian uh, to follow on someone like that. It's a great privilege and, and I might say uh, perhaps in a way it's kind of symbolic because you know this exhibition is a partnership between uh, Melbourne and New York, between the National Gallery of Victoria and the Guggenheim, um, even though David and I didn't dance together, uh, we appeared together, we were in parallel, and I hope that our talks kind of intertwine and don't overlap too much. Art historians are bound to disagree. I actually think that Frankenthaler image had a picture of the Lion King in it, so... Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I really want to thank you, uh, uh, first of all, uh, the National Gallery of Victoria, for inviting me to speak today. And uh, it's really a great honour to be involved in this incredible moment because I remember being a young boy being taken to important international exhibitions both in Melbourne and in Canberra and being inspired, you know, as a young teenager, like, what the hell is that? That's fantastic. Uh, and I think this exhibition, for some people, it's going to be a confirmation of how fantastic Guggenheim Exhibition and Museum is and for others it could be a real opening, you know, like it could start a career, uh, it could start a lifetime of enthusiasm for art. So thank you to Lisa Dennison, the director of the Guggenheim, and to Valerie Hillings, the curator, Amy Barclay and Jared Vaughan, Tony Elwood, everyone who was involved in bringing it out. Thank you. So today I'm going to read out my paper, but I'll make lots of kind of extemporal remarks um, and I'll try to remember to keep my mouth near the microphone. Um, and, and, and my title is Running Hot and Cool, Climate Change in Post-War Art. And uh, it, it's a, a very simple idea that I have. Um, it may not be entirely new, but I think it's a nice way of thinking about a very restricted selection of works in this exhibition works which I'm fascinated by um, from the period 1940 to about 1980, um, really interestingly a period before I was born uh, and really before I became an adult. Um, that's the period I'm fascinated with. Perhaps it's got something to do with origins. It's the generation before me. And what I'll be arguing about is through looking at a series of works in the Guggenheim collection uh, is that there was an artistic transformation that took place in post-war European and American art from what I'll call a hot art of spontaneous gesture, creativity, uh, irrepressible energy to a more cool art of, let's say, geometric form and repeated images. And this is illustrated very well, exemplified very well in this exhibition. As I'll argue, this development uh, was part of a broader trend in the post-war period, which saw artists deliberately downplaying the evidence of their own creative activity. And I think that's the really interesting thing we see moving into the 60s uh, in order to highlight, highlight the experience of the viewer before the work. So there's a kind of a shift not only from hot to cool, but also from author to audience. And I think that's a, it's a very, very interesting and significant movement. I won't really have time to speculate, it's a little bit outside my expertise, about what this means about the culture at the time. I might repeat this a little at the end, but basically I think, you know, after World War II, think Jackson Pollock, it's hot, right? I mean, he was a cool dude, but it's hot art. It's, it's intense, you know, it's, it's sizzling. Uh, 
And then later into the 60s, we see this restraint. What is it about? I think, you know, just after World War II, this unleashing of the individual, the, the, the rights of the individual after totalitarianism, after fascism has been defeated, it, it is, it's, a, it's a natural tendency uh, if we want to connect this to the social world. But I also think that that in itself, that idea of the uh, unleashing of the individual that happens in the 40s and 50s art, uh, artists start to become sceptical about that because that itself becomes a kind of a new problem that artists have to defeat I think largely because of something similar to what David was saying earlier, is this kind of consumerism and consumption where the artist as genius becomes a commodity. How do you fight that? Well, you become cool. And that's what I'll be talking about in the second half of my paper. Okay. So this is a very restricted kind of look at the exhibition. I stop at around about 1980. Anything that's contemporary with, contemporary with my adult years, I'm just afraid to talk about. I don't know why. So, let's go. Abstract Expressionism, hot painting. Hot painting in America. So one of the towering figures of post-war American art, and one of the primary hot painters of the post-war moment, of course, is Jackson Pollock. I'm showing you the Guggenheim collection work here on the left, too, and I'm showing you it to you next to the National Gallery of Australia's uh, Totem Lesson 2. I'm sure, I feel like I'm kind of, even though I don't work there anymore, I feel like I'm, I actually have another work from the National Gallery of Australia here, uh, not Blue Poles, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm sure they're very jealous, so perhaps it's good to, you know, have them here, you know, because uh, this show is so fantastic, I bet they wish they had it in Canberra. So, look at these two works, yeah, quite similar, uh, in many ways different, but uh, there's one thing I'll tell you about in a minute. Pollock stated in 1947 that the source of my painting is the unconscious. I mean, unfortunately, artists almost never say such direct things about their work. If only they did, they could put art historians out of business, because, you know, that's it. Okay, we know what it means. Thanks, Jackson. Many of his paintings have been decoded as referring to explicitly to psychological states, and when we look at the spontaneous technique, the rough brushwork, I mean, even here before he goes into the full-fledged drip technique, uh, we get this sense of the artist's famously tempestuous psyche, his inner life. And this is one of the reasons, of course, that it may seem appropriate to describe his work as a form of hot painting. However, we should be careful not to assume that what we're looking at is a kind of direct transcription of the inner workings of the psyche, as these are very complex works. One of the most powerful visual metaphors for the unconscious in Pollock's work is his tendency to partially mask or obscure uh, earlier compositions in the process of working. I had a quick look at this today, uh, and I think that's what I'm seeing here. Similar to Totem Lesson 2, uh, he tended to cover over earlier compositions in works from this period. So the grey, what looks like background, is actually something that's masking uh, uh, elements that are underneath. So what we're seeing is sort of like the surface of the water. You know, sometimes the light reflects in a way, you see the surface of the water. Other times, oh, there's a shark underneath. Well, what is it? I can't quite see. And it's that sense of what's under the surface that we get in Pollock's work that is a much more, I think important part of why his works do succeed at hot art because it's that heat of the subconscious we seem to see glimmering underneath the surface. 
in the later 1940s, as we know, I think I pressed this thing, don't I? Yeah. I'm going to actually point this at the computer, which shows just how technologically primitive I am, because I think that it's, you know, like a radio thing, but it's not. Uh, I might even go like this at some point, so just laugh appropriately. Uh, In the later 1940s, of course, we know Pollock's work shifted to a more completely abstract art. There were still vestiges of the figure in that early 40s period. And as we can see in this now fantastically large uh, version of this untitled Green Silver of 1949, uh, which is, of course, much smaller, we see where Pollock had begun to pour paint either out of the can or with sticks, hardened brushes, directly onto a canvas painted on the floor, uh, placed on the floor. Now, in a contemporary interview, he actually justified this unusual method of painting in the following manner. Here's a brief quote. The modern painter cannot express this age, the airplane, the atom bomb, the radio, and the old forms of the Renaissance or of any past culture, end quote. So isn't it interesting, you know, when I'm going to talk about Pollock as the hot painter, and not because he's, like, sexy, but because, you know, it's about spontaneous expression, there's also kind of a heat to do with technology, a heat to do with the atom bomb. You know, that's another kind of heat, too, that is in Pollock's work and very important. He felt that he had to express that aspect of his contemporary society. And he felt that this pouring technique, which itself is a kind of heated technique because it involves physical action, it involves work, it involves uh, physical movement, corresponded not only to the inner world but also to the world outside, a world heated by technology. And he, to do this, he, he felt he had to abstract his work more and more and more. It was important for Pollock that uh, the content of the painting would not be extraneous to the technique. It's not to illustrate the world. It's not to show an atom bomb going off. It's not to show the aeroplane, but it's rather to embody that somehow. In the process, the heat of the creation, the heat of the activity uh, is the same as the thermodynamics of, of, of the automobiles, of the machines out there in the world. So rejecting traditional methods of artistic control over the painting, Pollock poured, dribbled and flung and pooled paint onto a canvas on the floor, as I said. He's using gravity, he's using the liquidity of the materials and the collisions between paint and canvas here to create something, uh, to allow the materials to actually speak their own language. As the great art historian Maya Shapiro once commented, these kinds of techniques are those which confer to the utmost degree the aspect of the freely made, the freely made. And this is the moment I was talking about after World War II. Oh, I'm pointing it at the computer again. Uh, Willem de Kooning, much later, but uh, working in the same idiom, another artist in this exhibition who beautifully demonstrates that passion, that, uh, that f- sense of free creativity. Oh, a sense that the artist is liberated from constraints on their individuality. Of course, it's the photographs by Hans Namath that have really put this idea of a hot artist that I'm talking about in Pollock into the public imagination. Uh, and it's interesting that his, the whole idea of his art is mediated by technology. He was interested in talking about technology in his work, but it's the photographs of his working process that have really created the artist that we know today. And his paintings were created in the heat of the moment, as we saw in Namath's films and photographs. But it's important... In talking about Pollock as a hot artist, and this is a theme I'll return to throughout the talk, is that whenever you say this is a hot artist, you can also say there's a cool side to them and vice versa with the cool artists. Pollock insisted that he denied the accident. It wasn't random. It wasn't just crazy, you know, having a temper tantrum. 
He was giving over to the nature of the materials and to the forces of gravity. He was orchestrating all that randomness, all those chance operations, to give a sense of his liberation. And it's, it's been said that this, this dialectic, if you like, between uh, freedom, between activity and, bet- and control and orchestration of that activity uh, is a metaphor for a cu- recurrent theme in, in debates in contemporary America. We're talking about the 40s. Uh, that of modern man as the helpless f- prey of forces both within and without himself. So that's Pollock. And in, through this talk, I'm really going to be speaking about certain artists in great detail. Others I'll kind of skim over, and I'm sorry about that, but I know we all want to get home tonight. So it, excuse my selections. It's a matter of personal taste. Uh, but here we go. And I'm going to move across the Atlantic once and twice and probably another time tonight uh, so I can talk about things going on in Europe. Cobra, informal painting. And now we're talking about hot art, in my terms, in Europe. Artists in Europe were similarly preoccupied with the heat of the moment of artistic creation during the 1950s. And here we're looking at uh, two heads by the Dutchman Karel Appel. Here too, less so perhaps than the poured paintings of Pollock, but still uh, we see a sense of expressive spontaneity emphasised through bright colour, thick lines... Uh, and haphazard composition, a sense of unbridled activity. It's hot painting. At the same time as Apple's still quite figurative work, comparatively speaking, we have Oscar Yorn, which has got figurative elements, um, but is part of a tendency in European art which was called the informal movement. That means sort of not have form. And it was inspired, like Polk, by surrealism, and by showing the paint, by showing the material of which the artwork is made. And despite the ironic title, Yorn's uh, uh, 58 painting, A Soul for Sale, is a good example of the informal art tendency. It's a parallel to abstract expressionism in Europe. And it was believed by the practitioners of this kind of art that this type of work would go beyond form, would go beyond constraint, uh, and emphasise the process of artistic formation an intensely physical intervention on the canvas. And when we look at Yorn's work, we can kind of almost hear the, 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 the scraping of the, of the hairs of the brush and even the, the metal part of the brush holding the hairs as he's dashing across the surface there. It's, it's hot. We can see, feel the sweat. We can feel the energy. And this was a very common artistic mode in Europe and in the USA into the later 50s. And, and there was a sense in which, after a while... This mode of painting very quickly started to look old hat, almost like a fashion. There were too many imitators, and there there was a crisis that came about as a result of this. This is what I want to talk about. Sets the scene for the second part of the lecture today, which is about the cooling off of art in this period. Other European artists in the early 50s and 60s began to question this hot concept of art making and criticised it for not being as radical as its practitioners claimed. And for all that informal painting emphasised the materiality of paint, such work remained wedded to a very conventional conception of art, that is to say mimesis, or imitation. This new art may have abandoned many of the traditional appearances and techniques of painting, but it was still about reflecting a world beyond the canvas surface, in the case of informal painting, the inner world of the psyche. In other words, the figure of the artist had rushed in to sort of replace, in the case of abstract works using this technique, to compensate for the lack of form. 
This tendency in European art at this time was described by an Italian critic in 1956 as the cult of the personality. And this is a theme that we're going to see developing through the talk into the 1960s, uh, and it's a worrying aspect for the artists that come in the next generation. Now, the next artist I want to talk about is an interesting case because in many respects he's a classic cool painter, cool artist. But on the other hand, he retains another sense of the hot side of creation. So we have here an example of where, yes, there is definitely a seismic shift, a sea change from hot to cold or cool, 50s to 60s and into the 70s, but it's not that clear cut. It's a little bit like what Dave was saying before about happiness and misery. They're not always disconnected. So too with Klein, or Klein, as my French professor always used to say. If I called him Klein, he would kind of slap me like that. So the monochrome paintings of which we're seeing here, again, it's much smaller, as you well know, I hope, than what you see here. Uh, his entitled red monochrome with its even uninflected surface appears to be a total rejection, right, of everything that the hot expressionist painter stood for except perhaps the colour, you might add. But we have to remember that there were lots of other colours in his repertoire, particularly blue, which is a cool colour. I'm also showing you, alongside a reproduction of the Guggenheim picture that's here today, a, a, a photograph of Klein creating a different type of work, known as his fire pictures. So that's Klein over there, but he's not creating a monochrome in that example. I'll explain why I'm showing you that in a minute. Now, these uniform surfaces by Yves Klein, uh, painterly technique, removed, eliminated, the sense of energy of hot activity, spontaneity, removed, cancelled, negated. And he seems to have detached his work from that idea of the bodily presence of the author that was so important to abstract expressionism and the informal movement. So in that sense, in one sense, Klein actually removed that hot painting, that overblown celebrity author emphasis that was starting to where on some artists in the 1950s by annihilating manual skill, by completely removing the whole you know, expressive, inflected character of abstract expressionism. But it's not as clear-cut as that. He's not in totally a cool artist. And the reason why is because, actually, whenever he produced these kinds of works, he would always perform in front of them in some way or other. He would dress up like an orchestra conductor. He would dress up in the um, uh, costume of the Rosicrucian. He would wear white gloves like Mickey Mouse. Uh, he would uh, sort of present himself as a kind of figure in front of his work, almost using them as a stage set. I'm using a kind of a crude example to show you this. He had himself photographed many, many times creating these fire paintings with a great big blowtorch, right? So hot painter. It's a bit... You know, obvious. My apologies. But I really want to give you a sense of how complex this character is. He is really on the cusp. He's both hot and cold, having his cake and eating it too, like Marie Antoinette might have said. Now, this created a problem for some artists who were young and upcoming and thinking about these hot painters and how hot they were and how could they overcome this problem, which was in the late 50s starting to be seen as a bit kitsch. I mean, frankly, discussions among young artists and Manzoni in around about this time is in like 29 or something. Uh, how can we get over that? Well, what we could do is 
do something different to the canvas. Do something cool with the canvas, not hot. And that is to say, we could emphasise the materiality of the surface. Cool it down by saying, you know what, this is not a window onto another world. This is not a kind of conducting tissue that leads you to the outer psyche, where all that hot energy is happening. No, it's not that. It's just a surface. It's just a material surface. And not just that, it's no longer is it a window, but it's almost a kind of a sculpture. It's a three-dimensional sculpture. So, whoa, Nelly, everybody cool down. Don't think about, you know, all these neurons firing off, but think about this physical surface. And the thing I love about Manzoni, apart from, yeah, he's a jokester, right? Artist shit. But he, he's actually very witty and clever and subtle. In this work here, it's gesso, or kind of kaolin. It's got a sculptural quality to it. It's a sort of plaster-like material, which is very like sculpture. And he's saying, you know, this is a thing. It's just a thing. It's not leading you to anywhere, to any sort of hot zone of this artist's psyche. And it's only later, I think, that he, uh, as I know, for certain that he creates the artist's shit as a real mockery of the hot artist, you know. You want a, a real sort of taste of the hot artist's inner being? Well, you know, there it is, 30 grams, fresh to you. Just a little bit of context. That's not in the show. The other artist who you may have heard I'm working on, Lucia Fontana, Italian, born in Argentina. Differently, I think, to what David was saying earlier, um, I'm sure it's a Lion King, trust me. Um, but also, I think about Fontana is that, yes, there is a sense in which he's a hot painter. Uh, he's a bodily presence artist. He said, I was there, Fu was here. But if you actually read Fontana's own writings, he never talks about his work in that way ever, 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 ever. He also says, I was totally against the informal movement, that is to say, the hot European painters. Strange, though. These are slashes in the canvas, this work here from the 1960s. You think, well, this is like Zorro, you know. Uh, what he was said about this work was that I don't want to make myself the subject of my painting, I want to show space. I want to show what's beyond the canvas. I want to show what's in front of the canvas and what's beyond it. Not another world, but rather the wall behind, perhaps, the architecture of the gallery space. And in that sense, he wanted to cool down his painting too. And I think the way we see that is the way these slashes, made with a Stanley knife, which is a kind of mechanical, retractable blade, they're very precise. They're very, very calculated. They're not slapdash. They're very, very skillfully calculated in their placement and in their execution. It's almost like a mathematical equation. Beyond this canvas, there is space, the space that you are standing in, the space in which you live and breathe. And it was a continuation of a kind of work that he did in 1949 called The Spatial Environment, a very, very early installation work that was installed in Milan in 1949, in which the viewer would enter and actually become a part of the work. It was a dark room with a sculpture hanging in it that glowed. You might be interested to know too, just as an aside, that Fontana was one of the first artists to use fluorescent tubing as an art form. In 1951, he in fact created an enormous uh, fluorescent tube sculpture many years before Dan Flavin, but for, for rather different reasons. Agnes Martin, who I adore, uh, her art, I should say. Uh, Agnes Martin is a great example of the cool artist and, and a very sophisticated 
reason for why she paints the way she does. And we're now back on the other side of the Atlantic, back over in North America. A group of artists including Agnes Martin, Ellsworth Kelly and others who worked now with geometric form. Let's look at, this is uh, the earlier work, let's look at the 1970s, oh that reproduced well. Uh, the Agnes Martin paintings in the Guggenheim exhibition, I'm going to focus on this later one from 1977 called Untitled. The canvas is covered in gesso and an uneven ink wash. Over this surface the artist has drawn a series of pencil lines in a grid, both vertical and horizontal, parallel with the edges of the painting. The lines, straight enough to have been done with a long ruler, crisscross the surface of the painting. And we feel compelled to describe it as a grid. There's that term again, which is such an important concept in modern art, 20th century art. But this work actually defies, if you think about it, a lot of the associations we have with grids. We think grids, we think, you know, thinking inside the box, right? We think being at school, doing mathematics. Well, on close inspection, let's have a look. Is this a grid? Well, maybe not. The hand-drawn pencil marks are uneven. Their thickness varies considerably. We witness the record left by the pencil as it was dragged across the surface, including the jumps that occurred as the instrument encountered the small irregularities of fibre and gesso on the canvas surface. Unlike graph paper, which is, you know, kind of bang, bang, this painting is different. It's got a kind of subtlety to it that's not overly regular. We, 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 there are anomalies in the work. We notice the physicality of it, the subtle physicality of it. Now, one of the key elements of the way the work's been composed is that no portion of the canvas has been privileged over any other. As we stand about it, uh, in front of it, our focus is wandering around. We don't know where to focus. We're looking for something to latch onto. What are, what are we going to look at here? <coughs> now, Martin commented on this. She said, quote, It's not empty, but nobody thinks of space or shapes or anything like that, end of quote. She forces us to discard the usual connotations of the word grid, but we're also discarding our normal expectations of viewing a picture. We're not finding anything there. We can't latch on to anything. Martin commented in 1966, quote, I want to draw that quality of response from people when they leave themselves behind, leave themselves behind, often experienced in nature, end of quote. And it's to this I would argue that her compositional strategies are geared to a loss of self, in fact. Now, this loss is partly connected to the absence of distinct forms or figures in her paintings. As Martin described in 1966, again, quote, My paintings have neither object nor space, nor line nor anything. No forms. You can go in if you don't encounter anything. A world without objects, without interruption, it is to accept the necessity of the simple direct going into a field of vision as you would cross an empty beach to look at the ocean. End of quote. Beautiful, I think, summary of her work. Martin, and now this is me talking, not Martin, Martin wants to prevent the viewer from imposing him or herself on the pictorial field and allow themselves to be completely absorbed as one might be before the ocean's vast horizon. She wants us to leave ourselves behind and she leaves herself behind, referring back to this hot, cold idea, right? It's not the hot painter, it's the withdrawn, the reticent painter. But she also wants us to leave ourselves behind, uh, to leave behind our prejudices about viewing uh, because uh, 
that way we can actually experience the work. We don't come to it with a preconception. We can actually have an experience that's really meaningful and has a sort of sense of perfection about it and not describe it as anything in particular. It's actually a general experience. It's a moment, actually, of perceptual innocence. And, and for that reason, I think they're really, really beautiful paintings. And this is a particularly stunning example of Martin's work. I don't know if it's possible to see what, something like this in Australia. Pop art, famously, you might think, hot, you know, uh, pop art, consumer art, culture, mass culture. But there's a cool side to pop art. And this is the other thing I'll say about cool art is that it gets into pop art in America. We're still back on that side of the Atlantic. We need to understand pop art into the broader context of art in the 1960s. Robert Rauschenberg, not strictly a pop artist, often described as neo-data, but that doesn't really help us. What we see in this untitled 963 from the Guggenheim exhibition is how he took readily available objects. I think there's a kind of a heater cover or something there. Uh, there's objects in his other works. There's a sort of a baking tray and mass-produced images, reproduced, scattered around with kind of brushes of paint. And what's he saying? He says, quote, I don't, want to be a I don't want a painting to be just an expression of my personality. I feel it ought to be much better than that, end of quote. Right? So again, he's a cool artist. He's cooling the painting down in terms of its reference to his creativity, his spontaneity. There are still traces, right, of a hot expressionist brushstroke in these works, but they're intermingled with reproductions of other works and mass media images, which tells us that there's a sort of sense of uh, appropriation, a sense of things not being quite original. They're, they've lost some of their uh, authenticity, even the brushstrokes. Another important pop artist, of course, is Roy Lichtenstein. I'm showing your work not in the Guggenheim collection uh, exhibition, uh, top left, big painting, 1965, which I just love. Uh, you know, this is really his answer to Jackson Pollock, isn't it? You know, um, hey, I can do this too with this comic book, uh, cheesy, you know, love comic or, or rat-a-tat-tat comic book technique. And it's a really good example of how art cooled down uh, in this period, draining out all that sort of sense of energy. And this work preparedness, which I won't go into much detail because I don't want to go too much over time, but I, I find fascinating about this work is something I'm working on, which is the fascist period in Italy, how this reminds me of so many works produced, propaganda works produced in Italy in the 1930s under Mussolini. This is not, of course, to say that it's a, a kind of fascist work, but rather he seems to be drawing on that tradition. He drew on Picasso, he drew on mass culture, Roy Lichtenstein. I think here he's also drawing on the kind of military, industrial, propaganda art of Mussolini's Italy. Andy Warhol, who once said, if you want to know about Andy Warhol, just look at the surface of my paintings and films and me, and there I am. There's nothing behind it. End of quote. Okay? So I'm saying he too is a cool artist, right? And I don't mean, of course, that these are cold artists, that they're impersonal, that they're somehow dead, even though what is the subject of this work. But that's not what I'm saying. There's a heat in there, but it's mediated somehow by this cool, detached, withdrawn, reticent approach. And there are two themes running through Warhol's work, among many, that I think really come to the fore here. One is we have the cool artist's kind of destruction of the myth of the individual genius, because he's using these screen printing techniques that are mechanical. He said, I just want to be a machine. 
Also, we have the sort of sense of the erosion of art's capacity to evoke empathy for the plight of others. I actually think this work is about that as well. Pollock uh, was one of the people that Warhol was very interested in, like Lichtenstein, he's kind of deflating that whole you know, hot artist thing, and he's pointing out the non-original aspects of his authorship with this silkscreen transfer technique. But he's also able, through this medium, in this cool uh, mode, to be able to speak to the difficult challenges that mass media circulation of images offers to our ability for empathetic response. This is about death and capital punishment, perhaps, right? Electric chair. Can we see a comment on this about, I don't know, the injustice of the death penalty, perhaps? There's certainly a dark side to these awfully sort of hollow images uh, and this solar flare or burnout in the middle of this work tells us something, perhaps. But it's difficult to tell whether there's an ethical injunction here, I think. I think, and that's part of the cool artist's gamble. The cool removal of authorial intent in these images extends to the ethical and moral domain, and I think that's something we have to accept and grapple with when we're looking at these works. The viewer is forced to make up their own mind about these images, which present it as if they're simply facts, but they're mediated by the innovating forces of the mass media. My talk was supposed to finish at five past three. Do I have a kind of license to go another five? Yes? Okay. Now, I want to talk about the minimalists, and these are not the minimalists, but these are the kinds of artists that the minimalists were like, per, right? You've been into the exhibition, you've seen the Donald Judd, the Andre, the Sarah, the Flavin, right? Well, they're too, as you probably guessed, are cool artists emerging around the same time as pop art. And they believe that the inherited tradition of figurative sculpture, or even abstract sculpture, had something wrong with it. In the case of Giacometti, well, it's just too figurative. They thought it was too individualistic. They didn't want to be focused on this angst-ridden psyche of the post-war moment. It was the 1960s. Things had changed. That, as a strategy in art, had kind of lost its cultural capital by this time. It, it was something you could go and buy down at the gallery for whatever amount of money and hang on your wall. You know, like, let's get over that. It's not so new anymore. We're going to cool our art down. Get it away from this hot individuality issue. But the minimalists, interestingly enough, were also quite scathing about abstract sculpture. And I guess it's a question whether this is a truly abstract work. There were Noguchi on the right here in the, ex in the Guggenheim exhibition, The Cry. But artists like this, they also criticised for having too many relationships between the parts. They didn't want us to focus on the interrelationships between the parts in the work. They wanted us to focus on the relationship between the work and the viewer. Focusing on the relationship between the parts makes you think the work and how did the author put it together or what was the author thinking, what was the artist thinking. That's what the minimalists were against and also against figuration. And so they produced works like this wonderful Untitled 1977. And as we can observe, they began to simplify their works, removing the relationships between parts. And I don't mean to say that there aren't parts to this, but the relationships between the parts are kind of non-important. They're not about anything. It's just one thing after another. Da, da, da. You can't sort of read anything. Oh, he was feeling, you know, uh, sad because his wife left him that day. You know, I mean, you cannot make that reading, that hot reading of these works. That's the coolness in them. But there's a heat that emerges out of that, as I'll show. 
they're interested in promoting a certain type of relationship between the work and the viewer, and in particular, through scale, its relationship to the dimensions of the viewer, the physical body of the viewer. Now, Donald Judd began, interestingly, as a painter, but realised there was no way to avoid the illusionism of that medium, so he jumped into this new form, a kind of sculpture that he called specific objects, saying it was neither sculpture nor painting, neither one nor t'other. There's no sense of personal touch in these works. They are very machine-like in many ways. There are no relationships between the parts. It seems significant. It's a series. We don't feel like there's been a subjective choice involved here, particularly. There's no sense of an ego or a soul in the work, in a sense. Note, too, there's no base. It's directly on the floor against the wall. Uh, and we therefore interact with the works directly. They're sharing that space with us. They're down on the floor, down with us in our living and breathing space. And that idea is perhaps best put forward by Carl Andre, which I always delight in marching across. I'm often the only person doing it. If some of you haven't done it yet, I... I I, I, I really implore you to go and do it and look at the faces on the other people around you. <laughs> and then go like this to the security guard. And while you're at it, uh, grab a few lollies from uh, Gonzalez Todd. So I got a few. Uh, what did I do with them? I think they're in my other bath. I should have thrown them out to the audience. So we're focused on the materials. We're not thinking about the psyche of the author. And we're actually thinking, hey, I'm standing here. Oh, gosh, what... What am I? Am I involved in this? I'm actually part of the work. So the body of the viewer, the sensation of the viewer, the time that is evolving, that's taking place as you experience the work, is where the heat in these cool works comes out. So I know that kind of complicates the issue, but these cool artists create a sort of heat which is transferred from the artist to the viewer, to the spectator, who's not even a viewer anymore, who's a kind of a, a mover and shaker of their own. Sol who... Another artist whose work reproduces so well, um, and um, it was, I was so glad I did go and check this work before I came into the lecture theatre today, um, is the last art, cool artist that I want to consider today. Um, and his first solo exhibition took place around about the same time the minimalists were coming to the fore. And he too was resistant to the evident brushwork and dynamic compositions of the Pollocks and the de Kooning's. Lewitt's art embarked from the cool and symmetrical compositions of Donald Judd and, and Morris, Robert Morris. And the approach he developed was encoded in one of his earliest writings, which was called Paragraphs on Conceptual Art, uh, a 1967 text which many of you may be familiar with. This is where he really spelt out his idea. He says as follows, In conceptual art, the idea or concept is the most important aspect of the work. When an artist uses a conceptual form of art, it means that all of the planning and decisions are made beforehand and the execution is a perfunctory affair. And then this great quote, the idea becomes a machine that makes the art. That's Solowit in a nutshell. But notice in particular, not just the machine idea, which was common to the coolness of Warhol, but the execution is a perfunctory affair. Interesting. Perfunctory, quite unlike the hot artists of the 50s. We're only 10, sort of 10 years later. Now, one of the key elements... Uh, here is, as I was saying, you know, whereas the abstract expressions put primacy on the act of execution, Lewitt says that's not so important. It's de-emphasised. It can be handed over to somebody else. The core of the work, though, is the concept from which the work begins, which is just often a simple set of logical rules which must be followed to the letter. No subjective choice, what the artist says goes in this case. 
Now, this may seem to reduce art to nothing more than banal exercise. You know, take four lines in four directions, all their combinations, dum de dum But if you think about it, it's like that graph paper idea again, you know, we've all gone to sleep. But actually, when we see them in the flesh, not like this at all, but actually in the exhibition, you begin to understand how, as I was saying, the cool artists create a heat. And that's the interesting thing. And I think it's, it's hotter than the hot artists. For me. For me. The extraordinary wall drawing, number 264, has a simple concept behind it. A wall divided into 16 parts with all one, two, three and four part combinations of lines in four directions and four colours. Not a simple idea, perhaps. But each square of the drawing, considered separately, has its own visual weight and emphasis. One square has lines going in one direction, in one colour, the next in another direction, in a different colour, and so on. And then he combines them and overlaps them, and we get this incredible variation, subtle, so quiet, a bit like Agnes Martin, that is absolutely fascinating. And you find yourself searching in there, relishing every last detail. And together, the alternating variations on the theme seem to actually sort of dance before your eyes. There's a magnificent way in which you, you start to see the colours differently because they're so faint and looking at one of the squares for a while will affect the way you see the next one because of the afterimage that's created, ever so subtle. The other thing that I, I really discovered today looking at the Lewitt was the way in which I kind of drew imaginary lines in my head saying, OK, that's one, two, there's one and two together, there's one and three, and you actually sort of get these sort of imaginary lines being created before your eyes till you start seeing spots almost. But they're incredibly beautiful and incredibly intriguing. And I think it's easier to show that in a very, very simple work, which is not in the Guggenheim exhibition, um, National Gallery of Australia. Here we see a square out of four quadrants containing stripes running in different directions. Very simple idea. But the perceptual effects, I'm showing this to you so you can see it in the lecture theatre today and think about it again going back into the exhibition, is these strong contrasts between black and white combined with the frequency of their alteration, their spacing, as it were, produces an incredible shimmering effect, this really dazzling, deep kind of energy that just hums out of that work. And you see that too in the one in the Guggenheim exhibition. A constant tension between the static quality of the quartered square and the jostling, sort of vibrating appearance of the lines it contains. So that's the, the way that the cool artists became hot. Thank you very much.